Looking to start your own website? The first thing you need is a domain name, and the best place to get one is at GoDaddy.com. With your domain registration, you'll get hosting, a free blog, complete email, and much more. Plus, as a MuggleCast listener, enter code RON, that's R-O-N when you check out, and get your .com domain name for just $7.49 a year. Get your piece of the internet at GoDaddy.com. This is Professor McGonagall welcoming you to all to MuggleCast, hoping you enjoyed. Dobby, Dobby, come here. Yeah, Dobby. Yes, well, I'd just like to say how very pleased I am to introduce MuggleCast to all of you. Thank you. Thank you. Because Micah is still having nightmares, this is MuggleCast episode 197 for April 28th, 2010. Welcome back to the show, everyone. It's a special episode today. We have an interview with Warwick Davis um, coming up later in the program, as we have teased on our Twitter and Facebook pages, and I believe our website as well. Micah and Eric are here, and Matt's here. He hasn't been on for a long time. Hey, Matt. Hey. And, oh my gosh, so much to talk about. But Eric, I just want to say... You just celebrated a birthday. Happy birthday, buddy. Oh, thank you. Did you have a good birthday? It was. Actually, the day leading up to my birthday was was actually far more um, adventurous. Like, it was a lot of stuff happened the day before, and then the day of was, like, relaxing and enjoyable. So it was really cool. That's how my birthday was last year. I just sat there, you know, recovering from the night before. Yeah, totally. Mm-hmm. But um, <laughs> good fun. Well, like I said, we got a lot to talk about, a lot of Deathly Hollows news to get into. It's all it's all in celebration of Eric's birthday. I'm Andrew Sims. <laughs> I'm Eric Skull. I'm Mike Tannenbaum. And I'm Matt Britton. What is in the news this week? Many, many things related to Deathly Hollows. But first, uh, this past week, the American Library Association released their list of the entire decade's most banned or challenged books. And topping the list, can you guys guess? Huckleberry Finn. No. Willy Wonka. Try again. No. Uh, James and the Giant Peach, that is a up book. Oh, my God. You can't say <laughs> that. But anyway. Book. I, is Eric allowed to say that because it was his birthday? I, I guess so. He's a big boy now. Oh. So, what was the band t- top book? Peter Pan. Close. <laughs> what was it like? <laughs> as close as you can be. Matt has gotten the closest so far. Yay! Uh, Harry Potter. Oh, of oh. course. Why didn't I think of that? We're on a Harry Potter podcast, of course. Now, would you say? Would you say Harry Potter is the most challenged book or the most banned book? 
because they say well, it's banned. It was slash probably challenge. both. And what happens is, I mean, obviously the series was has been so popular over the past decade. It's not really a surprise that Harry Potter tops the list because when you look at these other books, they're all they're all sort of um, older books, I think. Uh, and it is a shame to see that it's banned. And I mean, it, it's been challenged, and people have attempted to get it banned. Right. But, you know, it's just a shame that people would actually try to prevent children from reading these books. Well, maybe not even just children. It could be anybody. Maybe with respect to religion, they look to not allow anybody to to get a hold of those books. Right. Aside it's, from children. It's fascinating. It makes me want to read these other ones here, like the Alice series by Phyllis Reynolds Naylor. Like, I, I don't recall really ever hearing about this. And uh, yeah. the fact that it is chain, you know, challenged or banned is uh you know very much interests me the only one i do recognize other than the potter series is number five which is of mice and men um yeah and i didn't find so that guess book to be that offensive but yeah. the books don't necessarily have to be published in this decade no. i guess it's just oh yeah how many well, any book oh, right, oh, yeah. right. they received challenges mm-hmm. in the past 10 years right. uh, this look from the america this list from the American Library Association was for the years 2000 to 2009 overall. Wow. Yeah. And all these books are from, I mean, you know, the the early to mid 20th century. Yeah. Well, there's His Dark Miracles, too. It's on materials. number eight. Oh, sorry. His Dark Materials. What number is it? Number eight. Oh, yeah. Okay. What'd you say? Were, minerals? Yeah. Uh, no, I said, I said miracles. miracles. Oh, miracles. His, his dark <laughs> Miracles. <laughs> It's a miracle. a miracle, but it's dark. You know, it's interesting. The other thing I wanted to mention here is uh, the library association. Like, I, we've always heard about the Harry Potter books. You know, people complaining that they contain witchcraft, and there have been you know popular trials and all that. But it's just never been real to me. Like that, it's so widespread that that people really feel that there's something of conflict in 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 the Harry series. For for it to be like the most challenged book series, there've got to be, you know, obviously because they did their their homework, there've got to be like documented instances of people challenging these Harry Potter books more than any other book. I mean, that's that kind of made it real to me when I was reading it because, you know, I I heard the occasional, you know, oh, the, you know, my parents think it's against, you know, religion or whatever, but I didn't think it was actually real widespread actuality that these books were getting banned, but I guess they are. All right. Well, I'm banning the discussion of this story any further. <laughs> How do you like that? How do you like that? A L A. Well, actually, A L A is not even the one to to blame. It's they they just gather the re- list. Of <laughs> don't requests. shoot the messenger, Andrew. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> but this isn't a surprise to anybody, I don't think. Right. So no. let's move on. All right. Okay, Laura Mallory. Well, I said there was a lot of Deathly Hollows news, and there is. Two interviews uh, were conducted, I guess probably about two weeks ago now, uh, one with Tom Felton, the other with Matthew Lewis, and it both related uh, to the end of Deathly Hollows and the final battle scene. Tom Felton referred to it as nonstop carnage, and Matt Lewis uh, was quoted as saying, it was bloody, gory, and harrowing. It includes more adult themes of death and violence, but it does stay true to the books by J.K. Rowling. So I was wondering, what do you guys think now that we've heard this? What's the, maybe not part one, but what's part two going to be rated? Do you think it's going to stick to PG-13? Yeah, they have yeah. to. You can't go up to R with a, with a children's film. That would, that would kill ticket sales. Mm-hmm. <sighs> yeah. Well, who says it's a children's film? Nobody well, does, it would but... S- 
that's the thing. Like, if you even, you know, there will be significantly less people will see the movie simply because it's rated R. Yeah. I mean, that is somehow that works. And because kids can't get in on their, on their own. Yeah, that's true. So yeah. it does, I mean, you know, to have a parent to sign for it, that stops people. Yeah. Theoretically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, oh, well, it would definitely put a dent yeah. in it. Right. And yeah. I think they would make sure, say, say they submitted this film and it got an R rating, they would, they would do something to get it down to PG thirteen. Yeah, yeah. No they doubt. usually yeah. they usually include a list of suggestions to get it to right get it down. And, and you've been it. oh, and and lately they've been pushing the whole PG thirteen, um, the whole border between PG thirteen and R lately in films too. So yeah, they have. I, I think I think it can get pretty bloody and gory and still maintain a PG thirteen rating. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I doubt we're going to see it be PG like Half Blood Prince. Yeah, I, I think you're I right still don't that. get why yeah. PG why Hepo Prince was PG. Do you guys like? It was. Well, I mean, it was a lot of. There, there was more drama, I would probably say, than the other films. It, it was. It was a lot of. It was a lot of um, dialogue between the characters, and not much of uh, of action, so to speak, with um, you know, with special effects and stuff, with bodily fluids going anywhere or something. <laughs> Unlike Goblet of Fire, when Peter Pettigrew cut off his hand. Yeah, it was also a comedy. Yeah, That's and true. comedies can't be rated R. Maybe that was WB's way of like ensuring that it didn't get too bad of a rating. They just like started saying, "Oh, it's a comedy, it's a comedy," <laughs> and, and all the interviews. And then they the the parents who do the MPAA ratings, they were like, "Oh, it's a comedy, it can't be that bad." Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I want to start calling it a dramedy. Dramedy. Oh, snaps! Getting pretty technical. All right, and then on April the 18th, Magic Box Music, a trailer scoring company who has worked on Potter trailers before, revealed that they're working on the score for part one of Deathly Hollows. See, that, that shocked me. That shocked me that, that the, uh, the trailer people, I mean, it makes sense, but that the, that these people will edit the trailer together and they'll, I guess, compose a score for it that isn't part of the movie score. Because mm-hmm. they like, must be excited for this. That's what they always do. Yeah, yeah. Well, I remember seeing like Pirates of the Caribbean, uh, I think two, the trailer for it, and it was using the same music as was used in, in, in like an X Men trailer, like years mm-hmm. before. And I, I remember that they recycle that, but I didn't know if it was the same studio or not. But I mean, I guess it makes sense. This is just this was shocking to me that they're composing new music for uh, this trailer when they could actually just use some of those epic, you know, ah, s- scene. Moments. Well, I mean, I'm sure it's going to be epic, Eric. I, I just, it's, it's just going to be original. So yeah. this is probably going to be the theme that all the other trailers after this in the future are going to be copying. Yeah. Well, since they are working on it, hopefully, uh, that means that they are close to finalizing some sort of trailer, but then again, they could hold it back for a couple more months as we will discuss momentarily with another. Yeah. Why don't new we story. just jump right to that? Let's do that. Talk Go about ahead. it a little bit. Oh, be crazy, Micah. <laughs> well, uh, we got a little bit of a tip last night, since we're recording here on Sunday, that the Deathly Hollows PR machine is going to start spinning rapidly. Can you uh, can you use my comparison? I compared it to a, a choo-choo train. Why don't you you use that comparison? Chuck a chuck a choo-choo. We're rolling, baby. Let's go. Promo train. So, what do they mean? Did they call it a train or a machine? Or well, go- sorry, Mike. Go ahead. Finish the. Story. Well, uh, we got word from somebody who spoke with the vice president of exhibitor services for Warner Brothers, domestic theatrical distribution. 
So basically what that means is she's in charge of the WB trailers and advertising materials for theaters in the United States and Canada. And she mentioned that there was going to be an aggressive marketing campaign, possibly with Twilight in June. Well, she didn't say possibly. I think they're pretty set on my impression. So here's what happened. Some crazy, well, I won't call him crazy. Some fan who really wanted to know when the trailer the first trailer is going to come out, emailed a bunch of people at Warner Brothers, and this Kelly O'Connor responded. Now, poor Kelly O'Connor, she didn't realize it was a fan. She thought it was somebody who works at a movie theater emailing her and asking about the trailer. So she replied back. I I saw the whole email conversation, so this is how I I (laughs) gather that she got the wrong impression about this person emailing. So she thought it's a movie theater like worker, so she said, um, we're not working on Potter yet. Her exact quote is, they're going to launch an exact, uh, an aggressive marketing campaign that launches with Twilight. And she's referring to Eclipse, the third movie, and that comes out June 30th. So I think around the end of June, that's when things are really going to start rolling out. And, and a lot of people in Mugonet's comments thought it was interesting. They described it as an aggressive marketing campaign. Yeah. And, you know, what could that mean? Well, banner ads like crazy all over the internet, uh, TV commercials like crazy all over the internet. Standees but in places stand- where you wouldn't ordinarily expect to find standees. <laughs> like the middle of the produce aisle. Yeah, yeah, the middle of your produce aisle at your supermarket. There's just going to be like a like a Voldemort kind of thing. Buy these peanuts and see me in theaters this November. <laughs> exactly. That's aggressive. <laughs> Do they really need to be aggressive, though? I hope they no, do. But, but I think, I mean, it's their final shot at doing all this. I mean, a- after Deathly Hallows, it's over. So they're just going to go all out. I want it to feel I want it to feel like it did when Book 7 and Movie 5 were coming out. I, yeah, I want to get sick to death of Harry Potter's yeah, appearance yeah. and stuff. I mean, that's... <laughs> <laughs> well, and here's the other thing. If they are waiting till June to get things started, then that's why I think part of the reason it needs to be aggressive. Because... It's not sort of like a slow build-up. It's just boom, all at once. Three months beforehand isn't that long of a wait. You know what I'm saying? So they really got to push it. Mm -hmm. And they have other films that they have to worry about right now. Well, yeah, and how interested are people going to be in that first film as opposed to the second one? I mean, they probably have to sell the first one a lot harder. That's true. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Mm -hmm. Fun a bit related to the film itself is that uh, Lego Harry Potter Years 1 to 4 is going to have a collector's edition. The game hasn't even been released yet. Is is this common for video games? No. No. In fact, mm-hmm. I saw it and I was like, what? They're doing, they're putting what with the game exactly in the book? So there's going to be this exclusive behind the scenes look at Harry Potter and the Deathly Hollows as part of this video game collector's edition. Uh, I'm not really sure what that's going to entail? Is it going to be completely new, or is it going to be something that we may see a, f- a few weeks, maybe a few days before the game is actually released? Oh, okay. No, I, I, don't th- I think it'll be with the game, and this game is supposed to come out June 29th, oh, and that's oh, when the aggressive marketing, marketing campaign... campaign. Yeah. An aggressive Lego game. Um, <laughs> Alright, that's what I'm saying. Is it going to be a trailer that's going to be released a few days before, or do you think it's really going to be exclusive to the video like, Actually, game? that... I- yeah, I kind of agree with the first part what you said, Micah, because it'll be exclusive you, to the video game. No, no, it's it, that that there's going to be at least like a teaser or s- some kind of preview before this. 
No, no, no. Look, 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 this game comes out June 29th. Right. With the game is going to be an exclusive behind-the-scenes look. Right. Not a trailer. Then the trailer will come out with Eclipse. Well, they do do that with games, though. They do put movie trailers, like, in games. Like, um, I had an X-Men game a while back that had all this, like, exclusive X2 footage in it. It's just something that you can do, and especially with the next-gen systems with, mm-hmm. you know, live internet connection and Blu-ray and all that stuff. They're going to probably, I mean, that's kind of the future of gaming is going to be. If there's a movie game, they're going to do some promos for it. So, yeah, it's not it's not uncommon, but what I was talking about initially was the magnets that are getting shipped. With the game, the mag- yeah, I mean, oh, that, yeah, that's all kind of weird. But I mean, the the, the behind the scenes stuff uh, in other games too. They, they kind of distribute it um, in between, like each level too. Like I remember when I was playing um, the Lord of the Rings games for uh, for Xbox. Like after every um, every level of the game, they they would have like a quick like little excerpt of um, going behind the scenes in the film and even um, behind the scenes of the video game. So they could like d- disperse that throughout the game as well, and they may even begin it with a teaser or a trailer if it's if they tend on releasing it before this game. Yeah, I mean they, they look like they're going to put in some behind the fe- scenes look at the the video game as well. I mean, I guess Eric, that goes to your point of it being sort of next generational, and that's what they're doing with video games. But I don't know; it, it just doesn't sit right with me that they're already making a collector's edition. It's seventy bucks. Yeah, uh, I mean, this is just yeah. a quick way to, you know, uh, boost boost profits. Um, and I, I, personally, I don't see anything on here worth the extra twenty bucks, with the exception of the exclusive behind the scenes look. But the in the age of the internet, that's just going to come online anyway on yeah. YouTube. So, right. Nice birthday gifts, I guess. I am looking forward to this game. We've talked about it on the show a lot. Um, it just, I cannot wait to get it for PS3. It should look beautiful. Oh, I thought we were going to get it on Wii. No. Oh. I'm going to get it on Wii. I'll tell you how it is. And I might be uh, checking that game out in about a week or so. That's right. Mike is going to a little um, Lego Harry Potter party in New York City to play the game for the first time. Oh, so that's cool. That's awesome. Let us know how it is. I will. Cool. I will. It'll be right around the time the next show uh, is released. Good, good. You'll have a and report. Maybe. When, when you're there, ask them, um, is this part of the uh, aggressive marketing campaign that <laughs> Warner Brothers is lining up? So uh, the final bit of news was that the Watford Observer uh, reported this week that plans have now been approved and finalized to turn Leavesden Studios into a permanent uh, studio. Sweet. What do you guys think of that? Oh, nice. Well, the bigger part of the story for Harry Potter fans is that there there will be a permanent Harry Potter attraction. attraction. Right. I didn't know what else to call it, so I just wrote attraction. <laughs> I'm not sure if that's the best word for it. <laughs> Opening in 2012 in the studio. So they're going to preserve some of the Harry Potter sets, and you'll be able to pay something. And then you'll be able to go in and get a little tour of the, the Harry Potter sets, which is awesome, I think. Yeah. Maybe it was just too big for them to move anywhere else. So yeah, like and then it plus there. it'll be cool for people to actually go to the studio where yeah. all eight Harry Potter films were shot. Yeah, yeah, that's the thing. It's like it's the real sets really where they were, you know, so that's cool. But I, I thought it was weird at first because, as you say, Andrew, you said last week, too, that uh, even though the Warner Brothers studio lot in Burbank has costumes and props uh, on, like, a second-floor museum, we got the, you know, on their lot, we got the, the Harry Potter exhibit, which is touring the world, uh, and, you know, I really think there will be something in the in, in the line of props at the, the Wizarding World theme park in Florida. So there are all these, uh, you know, permanent uh, attractions now 
that are going to have parts of these sets and parts of these movies pretty much all over. Um, so it's very interesting. What's interesting is they said that this redevelopment is going to cost a hundred million pounds. Uh, but what they're looking forward to, uh, I guess on the positive side is that it's going to create a lot of jobs for the local economy there. Yeah. So it's great news. And I think, um, It'll be exciting, even if you're visiting London. I mean, it's about a 45-minute trip from London, and I think they're going to keep uh, Dumbledore's office, because that's been there forever. The Great Hall, I hope. I mean, that's a big set, but they got to keep that one. That one's iconic. Mm-hmm. Um, Unless it's destroyed. Yeah. Well, uh, well, that's the thing. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think of sets that have been there all this time, and they're, the main two are Dumbledore's office and... The Great Hall. What what they usually do is they build sets and they tear them down as soon as they're done with them because they got to keep making room. So it'll be interesting to see what else they keep. I wouldn't be surprised if they rebuild a couple things um, because most stuff is gone. <laughs> so um, maybe stuff from the creatures department, I bet, or the special effects departments. They have a ton of stuff they saved from there. So if you're in London when that opens up, or anywhere in England, you got to go to that. Mm-hmm. And it's amazing how their studio is in the middle of nowhere. I mean, it's right nearby uh, neighborhood communities. It's just... Uh, oh, an- another one is um, uh, the uh, the Drive. That's been there. And that's an outdoor set. So I bet they'll keep that as well. So really exciting. I'm really glad to hear they'll be doing this. Yeah. So is that it, Micah? That is it. All right. Well, before we get to our interview with Warwick Davis, we have a... Uh, Reminder about the MuggleCast remix that we were talking about last episode on 196. As part of our episode 200 celebration, Eric is putting together a second MuggleCast remix. And he's looking for your favorite moments from episodes 26 to 100. Um, Eric, correct me if I'm wrong in any of this. If they can send you uh, favorite moments by emailing eric at staff.mugglenet.com and putting MuggleCast remix in the subject line. And when you write to him, include the, we're looking for the timestamp of your favorite moment. So send Eric the episode number and the time that the moment starts at in the episodes. So, for example, one hour, five minutes, 58 seconds in. Yeah, exactly. And uh, you can send more than one entry is, you know, it's more than welcome. Um, I've had a few people send in, you know, quite a lot of entries, which is great because um, it allows me to pick from the clips. Um but so far, I've only gotten ten entries. Uh, ten different people have sent an email in the past week, and I, I said initially because because it's going to get you know take a while to put all these together. Um, I said I was only going to accept entries for another week or so. But um, please do send emails. Um, so far, the mix is you know because I've only gotten ten entries, the mix is going to be five minutes long and surprisingly <laughs> include wow. only Micah quotes. So, oh, <laughs> I gotta send some in then. <laughs> so, How did that work out? I don't know, Micah. I don't know. I bet it was Micah who sent in all the. <laughs> had all the transcribers pull the. Uh, That's right. Timestamps and send them in on my behalf. <laughs> so visit MuggleCast.com and the top news post on the site has the information. Thanks so much for your help. It's going to be really cool. You can also listen to the first remix that Eric made um, a long time ago. Uh, it was back. Back when I, it, I it was actually it was when episode twenty five was the most recent aired episode. <laughs> wow, wow! All right, so now it is our time for our interview with Warwick Davis. We recorded it a few days ago, 
and we'll turn it over to that now. We are now joined by uh, Work Davis, the actor who plays Flitwick and Griphook in the Harry Potter films. He joins us now, and Work has a new autobiography out called Size Matters Not, The Extraordinary Life and Career of Work Davis. It's uh, in England bookstores now. Hey, Work, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure. No problem. Uh, we're going to start with some Potter questions, since uh, that's the focus of our show. Um, okay. And obviously our, our listeners know know all about you through uh, Harry Potter. All right. Uh, you're about to wrap up filming for Deathly Hollows. You recently said in an interview that you will be finished in June. What's the feeling like on set, and what are you going to miss the most about the franchise? Um... I mean, I've had such a wonderful experience on uh, on all of the films, um, and uh, and yeah, it will be sad to say goodbye to people that uh, that, that we've been working with for um, for almost ten years now, you know, and uh, we have become very close, and it's, it's almost like a family kind of uh, uh, situation. Um, I, I often liken it actually to going back to school, you know, for a new term, and that was each film we would do was be the, the new term at school, and uh, and everybody's grown up, and now we're all about to kind of go and graduate and go our separate <laughs> ways, and uh, it, uh, it, it it's going to be going to be sad, but I mean we'll we'll always have the work that we've created to 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 look back on as our legacy, really, for for many many years to come. I mean the Harry Potter films are not 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 things that will be forgotten about very quickly, so. Uh, um, you know, we'll, we'll always be very proud of what we've achieved in the, in the 10 years. Yeah, and, and you've now been a part of two of the most popular movie franchises in history, you know, Star Wars and Harry Potter. Did you ever think, you know, like 10 years ago, that Potter would have become this kind of phenomenon, sort of like Star Wars did? And, and how does it differ from Star Wars? I mean, it is amazing, and I, I don't think that, uh, you know, I ever took it for granted that there would be a sequel each time. You know, I've taken each movie as it as it came along and, and always been hopeful that, that my character would appear in the, the screenplay because, of course, in the translation from novel to screenplay, uh, you know, many characters are often not included just for, for time's sake and also for kind of the, the way that the, the screenplay has been constructed. So, you know, I was always grateful that, that the characters that I was involved with had, had made it into the adaptations each time. And, uh, uh, and I mean... I suppose when we got to about number four or number five, it became quite clear that yeah, this is this is probably going to go all the way now. Um, but but certainly for the first you know two or three, you know, we were pretty unsure each time. And just you would look at the success of the film and just keep your fingers crossed that uh, indeed we'd all be asked back to uh, to continue uh, continue with this. Um, and I, I mean, I suppose that the, the similarity between Potter and Star Wars is that the the story is a very, very big story and, you know, it's broken up obviously into different parts, but, you know, you can look at it as a whole thing. It would be lovely to be able to sit down as you can with Star Wars and watch all six parts and with possibly you'll be able to sit down and watch eight films and I think you'll see them very differently then. You know, we're all used to seeing the different episodes, different movies as we've gone through, but now we can sit back and look at the, the whole thing as one as one piece um, and uh, that'll be quite an experience, I'm sure. There'll be many, many uh, Potter fans throughout the world uh, doing these sort of marathon uh, <laughs> viewings in the future, which will, which will be fantastic. Absolutely. And uh, you, you recently said about Deathly Hollows, the split uh, into two films, that you thought it was a good idea because it's going to do justice to the final book of the series. 
Now, based upon what you've filmed so far and I guess what you can say, do you believe that these two movies are going to stay true to the book, possibly more so than any that have come before them? Um, I, I've got to be careful how I answer any of this. But, um, uh, I mean, I, I often look at the, the, the films versus the novels, because this is a kind of a question that comes up and a kind of a, a debate, I suppose, amongst, you know, people who read the novel and fans of the films, etc., as, as to do with the similarities. But I like to view them as kind of separate pieces of art in, in their own right, so that, you know, um, obviously the, the, the films are based on the book, but... But but I think they should stand, you know, beside each other. But also, you could you could see them very differently. You know, I I I don't see that we have to be worried about them particularly following the book. And and if uh, you know the producers want to embellish on certain things more than the the novel was able to, um, then you know I think that's all fine as well. There has to be a certain amount of artistic license allowed. You know, um, otherwise it becomes very sort of restrictive to to make a film uh, based on a, on a book. Um, but yeah, as I, I can't really comment on the, on anything regarding Deathly Hallows in that respect. I'm afraid. Right? Did Did you ever have any uh, discussions with J.K. Rowling about the characters of Flitwick and Griphook to to help you prepare for the roles? Well, I mean, all of the the preparation I did for any of the, the characters was based on the books and uh, descriptions and and, uh, and that sort of thing from those novels. So I've never had any direct discussion with her to say, you know. How, how should this be done, etc. You know, I've, I've gleaned all of that from from reading the book and interpreting that, and, and hopefully interpreting in the the way that all of the readers out there best imagine it. Because you know, the, the human imagination is a, a wonderful thing, and yeah. uh, you know, as filmmakers and actors, we can never hope to get close to how wondrous you know the the images that you can create in your mind are, but. You know, we can do our best guess at that and try and find a, a middle ground. And that's certainly what I did with, you know, the, the characters that I played, is try and find a, a best guess at the interpretation to try and suit most people. And, uh, you know, I think on the whole, I've, uh, I've managed to do that. And J.K. Rowling, I did ask her after the first film, you know, how was Flitwick? And she said that he was very good, thank you. So, you know, I, I, that's, that's about as much as I've got as far as, you know, Kind of direction, etc. Went for, for character, right? It must be great to hear. You know, the author tell you that you did a oh, great yeah. job putting him. Oh, on absolutely, film. yeah. Because yeah. it's always in the back of your mind, as I said. Right. You, you, you kind of wonder: Are you doing justice to the the literary work? And uh, sure. and is this all is all as it should be? Um, and uh, yeah, she's. Uh, She's never made any complaints, so I, I assume I'm, I'm cool with this. <laughs> good, good. Well, how big of a fan of the books were you prior to the films? You know, were you just as eager to get every as everyone else to get your hands on a copy of the next book? Well, it's funny, you know, um, it was it was several years before the films were even talked about that I first heard about the books, uh, and it was it was while I was uh, working on another project, and one of the actresses had uh, this book entitled Harry Potter and we were actually traveling to the location on a on a minibus and I said uh, what's this book you're reading she said oh it's a, it's a it's a fantasy book it's really great and she said if they ever made it into a film you know there'd be there'd be characters for you to play and I was like oh that sounds cool anyway that was the, the kind of last I heard of it for a couple of years until my agent called up and said uh you know, we've got this uh, this script coming, and there's a part they would like you to audition for. And, and 
Harry Potter. And by then, you know, the books were obviously becoming quite a sensation. And, and you know, uh, so I was, like, very impressed and very excited then to uh, to be able to audition for this. And uh, it was uh, it was a nerve-wracking experience. I described this in, in, in my book, um, actually going up to the, the studios uh, at Leavesden. In, uh, in North London and uh, and meeting with Chris Columbus and the producers and uh, and actually having to to do the audition which went very well and um, and and it, it you know it left me with a really good feeling and a, a very positive feeling but then not hearing anything for three weeks after that no phone calls nothing you then start to really doubt yourself and, and actors by their nature are insecure characters and I, I just became very insecure at the whole thing thought I must have really messed that up because yeah. you know I've not heard anything and and when you don't hear anything that means you didn't get it they don't phone you to say sorry thanks for coming in but we don't need you <laughs> right. they only phone to say when they want you and I thought it's been way too long now three weeks uh, yeah. but as, as uh, you know the fact I'm talking to you now testifies I, I did indeed get a call uh, just after three weeks from my agent and it was wonderful because he said you know they'd love to offer you the part of Flitwick I said it's fantastic you know because um, Flitwick was a dream role for me he's a character that um, that I had played in some uh, some old home movies that I made uh, <laughs> in my bedroom I, I, I used to play this kind of mad professor sort of character and I'd be sort of in this little laboratory mixing up potions and things. And he's, he was the genesis and the sort of seed for Professor Flitwick. So he was a character I'd always wanted to play. Um, but, but not only did my agent say, you know, you've got that role, but he said, wait a minute, you know, are you sitting down? Because they would like you to play another character, the Goblin Bank Teller. So I, I sort of, you know, hit the jackpot twice, right. as it were. And uh, it, was, it was just a wonderful uh, you know, honour and, uh, you know, to to be part of it. But as I said earlier, little did I know it was going to lead on to be sort of 10 years worth of, uh, of acting work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and off of that, I mean, you, you've been on these films since the very beginning. Are, are you mm. someone who believes the films could have benefited in a certain way from one director? Or do you think that uh, all these situations, you know, you've had four different directors now. Um, do you mm. think they bring a sort of different dynamic to the series that, that adds to it? I think it's been really nice to have uh, a sort of uh, a different director for, for many of the films now, as you say, four different directors, because they've all brought their own their own little piece of magic to it, their own little touches to it. Yeah. Um, you know, Chris Columbus was perfect for the first two movies because he's a brilliant director in bringing out great performances from youngsters, and you know. Dan Rupert and Emma were very, very young then. I don't know exactly how old they were, but I think they were around about 10 or maybe slightly younger than that. Yeah. So, you know, you've, you've, you've got to have a director who knows what he's doing to get the performances out of the, uh, out of the actors at that age. And I do remember one thing that, um, that, that Chris did. He had lots of little techniques and lots of little tricks he'd try uh, to, to get the reactions that he wanted. And uh, it was really a reaction I wanted from Dan for um, him first um, seeing the Goblin Bank Teller. Um, he wasn't yeah. really reacting in the way that Chris wanted, and so he said to me very quiet, he said, when, when, when we uh, start rolling on this close-up of Dan, he said, I want you to just do something extreme all of a sudden so we get a reaction. <laughs> so, so I said, all right, okay, leave it with me. So yeah, they start rolling, and, uh, and Chris shouts action, and, uh, and we start the dialogue, and all of a sudden I just yelled and uh, screamed right in his face as loud as I could. And all he did was looked at me blankly and then just burst out laughing. It had completely the, 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 
that it didn't have the desired effect at all. But uh, yeah. so Chris was really great for for that sort of thing, and I thought he he also brought a kind of an innocence and and, and magic to those first films because uh, again, you know, Harry was coming into this as we were the audience and kind of, you know, being introduced to Hogwarts. And I, I thought that was, it's just sort of that beautiful innocence about that film. And then also that, that then led into the next one. And Alfonso Cuaron, again, started to turn things a little bit darker. You know, the books and the novels were becoming darker and the characters were growing up. So, you know, again, that was a, a really sort of interesting style that he had. And I think it did lend itself very well. And then Michael Newell, um, who, who directed number four. I mean, he, he reminded me, actually, I, I went to, to public school here in the UK, and um, he's very much like a public school headmaster in his own personality. Mm. And, you know, and Hogwarts reminds me of my school as well. So really? he kind of came into this and really had a great sense of how that kind of school environment should be and the adolescence and all of that sort of thing, how that kind of, uh, that, that tension was starting to, to, to build in the, in the stories as well. So, uh, and then finally, David Yates, who's the most marvellous director as well, uh, a complete contrast to Michael Newell and, and the others, but again, brings his own sort of fine detail and precision to the whole thing. And, uh, you know, I particularly enjoyed working with, uh, with David uh, on these. And, uh, you know, uh, what an achievement, though, to actually work and have directed four of these films in very quick succession. I mean, it's, um, yeah. it's something that, you know, a director gives their, their sort of soul <laughs> to something. And to do that four times in a row yeah. is just a, a tremendous achievement. And... Uh, I certainly enjoyed working with him, and he's given me so many lovely opportunities, you know, as far as characters and uh, and, and scenes and things, you know. We we'll often discuss, you know, I often drop hints of, of other things I could possibly do in the films, and, uh, you know, he, he takes them all on board as well, which is bad. Yeah, that's great. And, and mm. since you are so experienced in the, in the film industry, we wanted to ask you about the recognition that, that the Harry Potter films gets in the industry. Um, the series mm. already is and will no doubt hold the record, if not for a very long time, perhaps forever, as the highest grossing film franchise of all time. Do you believe that the Potter films don't get the respect uh, they deserve from the Oscars, and do you think that movie seven and eight could possibly, you know, break through with an Oscar nomination? What, what's your take on all that? Um, yeah, I've I've often wondered this and, and considered, you know, Oscars and and how the voting and things works, and mm-hmm. you know, the, the voting is done by the sort of industry professionals and and kind of, the, you know, the peers of, of the, the films that are are actually, you know. Um, up for nomination, etc., and and I think that um, you know possibly sometimes these huge blockbusters don't often benefit you know where they should because of the fact that you know they I don't know perhaps there might be some envy within the within the voting <laughs> part of the industry that uh-huh. that these are so successful and and then and it takes away a little bit from the art of the whole thing. Yeah, but, you know you yeah. look at these films, you know you look at the Harry Potter movies and they're just so much wonderful work and skill. I mean, you know, knowing this from working on the films, I know how many people just go into putting me on set, basically, how much preparation there is for my makeups, for, uh, you know, it's, it's many, many man hours and a big team of people 
just to deal with one character. Yeah. Um, and, and so, you know, and you watch the films and there's the, the, the wonderful music and the special effects. And I think we're starting to actually take it for granted because it is all so good all the time. Yeah. You often, you actually are starting not to notice when stuff's effects. You just <laughs> actually take it for granted now. Um, but, uh, you know, each time we just do the best job we can and, and we actually raise the bar each time because, the, the, you know, the next film we do, we've got to be better than we were before. Right. And so, you know, we're honing all of the skills all the time. So uh, yeah, it would be lovely to, to get some recognition for the films and for all the brilliant people that have worked on them, you know. Um, I, you know, they all deserve, you know, recognition and, uh, and awards, certainly, you know, for, for the, the brilliant work. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, what's your uh, personal favorite film in the f- series? You know, putting aside Deathly Hollows. Yeah. You know, up to um, this point, I think it's probably Prison of Azkaban, actually, because I very much like that book, and I just think the film works very well. The, the, the way that the I, I love the time turning sequence, and when I read that, I was very looking forward to seeing it. You know how how it was going to be put on screen, and uh, and again, I think it's just done so so well. Um, so yeah, that, that to me is, is, is a favourite. But I got I got loads of favourite moments in all of the others. It's hard to pick a favourite thing, but but uh, yeah, I do enjoy that one. So you enjoyed the uh, the crowd surfing in Goblet of Fire? <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah, that was uh, that was that's another thing I talk about in my book uh, as well. Just the fact that you know what started as a um, a kind of a jokey suggestion. Um, not even a suggestion, actually, just kind of a joke to say to Michael Newell, <laughs> ended up being something we shot in the movie. Um, and that was what I was great about him. I could often suggest ideas, and Michael would take them on board, and, uh, and we'd do them. And there's, there was so much wonderful material, um, you know, from uh, from that film that, that never made it into the movie. I mean, uh, you know, you've got to see Flitwick playing air guitar and stuff. You know? <laughs> oh, there was, no there's loads of stuff, yeah. Cool. I mean, whether... It'd be lovely in the future to see it as some sort of Easter egg on the DVD, but right, um, right. There's there's so much so much that doesn't make it into the film, and and as an actor, you always see that when you watch your movies, you always see the first time you watch it, you always see what isn't there. That's the first things that you notice is oh that's been cut, that's missing. I believe right. use that. Right. Then the second time you watch it, you enjoy it for what it is, but but yeah, you always end up seeing what's not there, and and more often than not, the majority of what you do in films is is kind of. Uh, is lost to the cutting room floor, I'm afraid. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You also had that great little uh, fist pump uh, when the Weasley t- twins fly away at the uh, yeah. in Order, Order of the Phoenix. Phoenix. Yeah. <laughs> no, actually, that was good. We shot that actually um, fairly early on, and um, and then uh, David thought it was really really nice if we kind of gave that a bit more justification, and then we went and shot the scene where um, where she comes and, and measures Flitwick. Um, <laughs> And and that kind of gave a little bit more of the motivation because it Definitely. was like, you know, how kind of cheeky is that? You know, I'm yeah. not measuring up to the standards now in the Hogwarts. I'm right. actually too short, <laughs> um, which is brilliant. I, I I thought that was actually inspired. That was a great moment. Yeah, it was. Um, and, okay. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, uh, who's your favorite character aside from Flitwick or Griphook in, in the series? I think it's got to be Professor Snape. He's the one I would love to have played. I mean, he's just a brilliant character. Alan is a brilliant actor and just portrays the character so well. And um, I just love watching him. He's just mesmerizing, isn't he? He's just, he's sort of almost hypnotic in a way. Yeah. Um, and the way that he also splits his dialogue up and, and uses the phrasing is, is the most unusual phrasing and, and the, 
the pauses are all in in you know in the literary sense all in the wrong places but it just works <laughs> perfectly for that character it's just it's fascinating to watch alan you know when he's portraying the character yeah. on set yeah you right. never know what you're going to get and it's just brilliant yeah um the uh harry potter theme park is going to be opening up soon and, and you have children are you are you excited to take them there any any plans to to visit Oh, absolutely! Yeah, I shall be there, and uh, and yeah, the, the kids are going to love that too. I mean, my children, who are seven and thirteen, Annabelle and Harrison, are very fortunate because they've been, you know, to what I would term the real Hogwarts right. quite a lot of times. <laughs> um, but, but to them now, it's not that exciting. It's just it's dad's work. Yeah, you know? yeah. <laughs> it's my office they go to, and uh, you know. Um, but uh, but yeah, it's going to be a magical place. It's, I, I can't wait to go. Yeah. I mean, I hear you get to choose, you get to go and get a wand and all of this stuff. It's going to be just fantastic. Yeah. So, uh, so I'm I'm looking forward to it immensely. Yeah. Yeah, it's really exciting. So uh, let's talk more about your book now. Um, what kind of Harry Potter related stories can we expect to find in in a Size Matters Not? Well, uh, we've sort of brushed upon a few there that, yeah. that we, we've already talked about. But there's, I mean, I, I talk about Michael Gambon and his beard troubles. Um, I mean, there's there's quite a few little nice stories in there as well. And uh, and and I ran this uh, past the production. You know, I said, you know, it's all okay to talk about what I'm talking about in this. And uh, and David Heyman, the producer, um, read it, and uh, he was very generous in offering. Uh, you know, a quote, and uh, okay. you know, he, he he was enthralled by it and, and enjoyed it very much, um, which is was really nice because you know I'm obviously very conscious that um, you know the franchise has been very good to me and I you know and I enjoyed it so much, but I also you know owe it as much respect as I can, and uh, I just wanted to make sure I was you know everything I wrote was was what was you know good to write about and. Um, so yeah, there's some really there's some fun story. Mostly it's fun stuff. I talk a bit about the makeup, my makeup artists, and the, the kind of the the the, the torture of, of sitting in a makeup chair for many hours every day. <laughs> um, so uh, so it's it's all good stuff. Yeah. So how did you you get the idea to write this book? When did you decide? Okay, I'm going to do my autobiography. Well, I, for the past sort of five years, I've had a few approaches from publishers who have said, you know, would you like to write a book? And I, I've just brushed them aside and thought, well, I don't really know what I'm going to write about. You know, I, I thought you had to write an autobiography when you were about 60 or 70. Um, and I was just like, yeah, I don't, oh, I don't really know. <laughs> and then I thought, it, it suddenly occurred to me about two years ago, really, I should do this, you know. And um, I, I happened to have a, a meeting with a publisher and, and, and it, it sort of all fell into place. Uh, and I sat down, though, the, to write the book and it's quite a lonely thing to do to sit there and look at a blank piece of paper and I thought well where do I start um I guess at the beginning you know but then I, I thought I don't remember the beginning so I thought well I'll talk to mum and dad and so then you start talking to people who are you know influential in your life and you, you start piecing it's like a jigsaw and you you find all the bullet points you know so it was like you know, being born going to school then oh first work on Return of the Jedi break into the movie business and then you you find okay labyrinth and you've got willow and then you you maybe go uh or then leprechaun then and then you got star wars again and then harry potter so you, you kind of do all that and then you go back and you then start filling in the details that happened all in between that you see and then some sort of family then you know meeting my wife and then having children and all that and so it, it was a really 
wonderful experience. It made me actually stand back a bit and say, wow, I've actually done quite a lot. Because when you're living the life and the career, I hadn't really I'd sort of taken it for granted a bit what I was doing. Yeah. So when I stood back and wrote the book, I was like, gosh, this is quite... I've, I've you know, I've, I've achieved quite a lot in, in 40 years so far. And, um, you know, it, it, was, it was really, you know, made me appreciate it, I suppose, a little bit more. Yeah. Yeah. Now, the, the forward to your book was written by George Lucas. Do you still keep in touch with him on a regular basis? Oh, absolutely. Very much so. I mean, um, when you work for Lucasfilm, you become part of the Lucasfilm family. So I have many uh, great friends uh, who work for Lucasfilm still. And, uh, and uh, you know, it, it didn't take any persuading for, for George to, to write this. You know, and I, I thought he was just the right person to do it because he... He has been so influential in my career. He gave me my big break uh, and has continued to give me great opportunities, you know, all the way through uh, my career. And um, and so, yeah, he was he was a really great person. But little did I know he'd write such nice things about me. I didn't know he held me in that regard quite, you know. So it was um, it was really quite an honor and, and it's very flattering what he's written. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. that's great. And uh, a little more about Star Wars. Do you do you attend yeah. any of the cast reunions? And what were your thoughts on the making of the prequels? Um, well, I I do keep in touch with many of the cast because I I attend Star Wars events, Star Wars celebrations in America, uh, you know, and Star Wars celebration in Europe here. And so you know, I I see many of the cast quite often. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and it's really nice. I mean, it's, uh, it's the, the fan community is still as enthusiastic as ever, even though we haven't had a movie for quite a few years now. Um, but uh, but soon to have the live action TV series, which uh, I hope to get in somewhere. I'd like to be a villain though this time. I want to play a, a sort of villainous character in the, in the TV series. But, ah, cool, um, cool. Yeah, it'd be, it'd be good. That I mean, the, the villains are great sort of character to play anyway. Any any actor will tell you that. They, the villains are always the, the sort of the best ones. Um, <laughs> So, uh, so, and, and the prequels, I mean, yeah, it, it, it wasn't like Harry Potter because we had this huge gap in between and everyone was anticipating. And, uh, you know, in that big gap that was in between, I was dropping lots of hints to, to George to say, you know, when you get around to making these films, I'd love to be part of them. And, uh, and um, you know, eventually, you know, in uh, 97, um, he, he got around to doing uh, episode one, um, which... Uh, which was great, I mean, and and a lot of people go, oh, you know, they prefer one trilogy or the other, you know, um, and uh, I, I think it's it's really what you grew up with. I grew up with the classic trilogy. You know, I was seven when I saw Star Wars. Right, they right. feel like my, I kind of feel ownership of those films, but I think it just depends on how old you are. My kids are actually, they're kind of more drawn to the prequels, do you know what I mean? Because they were growing up and not growing up. When right. Films came out. So, right. Right. Um, I think it's all kind of relative in a way. Yeah. Well, spe- you just mentioned villains, and uh, you mentioned the Leprechaun before, and I can tell you that that movie still gives me nightmares every time I see it. <laughs> Do you ever look back and think? <laughs> I've just traumatized you there as well. Haven't I? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm gonna. I have to jump off the headset right now. Um, I mean, do you ever look back at, at that film in particular and think, man, I was pretty creepy in that film? I thought you were going to say, do you ever look back and regret it? I <laughs> no, I no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I, I don't suppose I look back like that. I mean, oh boy. I mean, the, the Leprechaun came about. I mean, again, this is something I talk about in the book. I have some wonderful stories about Leprechaun in there and the kind of 
becoming involved with the project. But, you know, up until that point in, uh, in 1991, I had only ever played kind of good characters, you know, Ewoks and, and Goblins and then Willow. And, and so, you know, I was being perceived as the actor who could play nice, short characters. And, uh, and then when the script arrived, I was like, hey, this guy's a baddie. You know, he, do, he gets to do pretty bad things. This is, this is something I want to do because it's going to show that I've got sort of diversity in my performance and everything and uh, that I can do, you know, not just nice guys. And, uh, and so, you know, I jumped at the opportunity and, and again, little did I know at that point we are going to do six of these things um, through, through the years. Um, but, uh, but he's a very fun character to play. I, I, I'm quite fond of him and uh, he's, he's just so extreme. I can just, I can just let loose and there's no, there are no boundaries on him. You can just be as crazy as you like and it's probably better that you are. Um, and and there is a, there's, a, there's a following out there for these films. You know, if I had the money, I would make Leprechaun 7 myself because I know <laughs> it would sell. You know what I mean? It, it's one of those things. And uh, I think a great number seven would be a Leprechaun kind of crossed with a Pirates movie. Do you know what I mean? Uh, so, in other words, either the Pirates have just stolen the Leprechaun's gold or what have you. Uh, I just, it would work perfectly. They, they all like drinking, and, and it would, I think it would be fantastic. I'm going to actually call Johnny Depp and see if he wants to do it. <laughs> Are you really? <laughs> <laughs> uh, that would be awesome. Fantastic, wouldn't it? Wouldn't yeah. It would be great. So, yeah, so, but anyway, I mean, it's, um, I do appreciate all of the, the demented Leprechaun fans out there. Thank you for supporting <laughs> <that>. <laughs> Well, just going back to uh, to Potter for for one second, um, one of the the questions that seems to come up the most often is if you could take one prop from the set of all these films, what would it be? Like, what would you love to have on the mantelpiece at home? You know what it would be lovely, and I'm sitting here as I'm talking to you, looking at a prop that I have from Willow. I have a Willow wand mm. in a frame on the wall here, and I would love a Harry Potter wand in a frame just next to that. Right. I think it would be marvelous. So that well, that would be the one thing. I mean, I think all of the professors would tell you exactly the same thing. You know, all of the all of the faculty at Hogwarts would love to have their wand at the end of all of this. But uh, but who knows? Um, yeah, that that would be the one. That would be the one. So you could pick it up from time to time and reenact that classic scene from from Sorcerer's Stone, the swish and flick. <laughs> oh, I do enjoy the swish and flick, absolutely. And I do a lot of um, a lot of talks at schools about about acting and you know how youngsters might get into acting. And and at one point, somebody asked me about that, and I'll always end up doing a little charms class with everybody. And it's 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 quite magical, you know, to to see all of the kids kind of. Uh, practicing a swish and flick with Guardian <laughs> Leviosa. <laughs> That's it. it. It brings us all back. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Uh, before we wrap this up, any other projects you have lined up in the near future? Well, um, I'm actually currently um, developing a new comedy series called Life's Too Short uh, with um, Ricky Gervais and Stephen Merchant, who are the creators of The Office and Extras. Right. And who I, I knew from working on the Extras uh, series 2 um, in the episode with actually with Dan Radcliffe in. Um, and uh, so, uh, so, yeah, we're developing a comedy for the BBC at the moment, and uh, we'll shoot the pilot uh, in June. 
uh, with a view to going to series. So it's all very exciting. Cool, cool. All right, well, Warwick, uh, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Again, uh, your new book, The Extraordinary Life and Career of Warwick Davis, is in England bookstores now, and it'll be hitting the United States probably a couple months, hopefully. Absolutely. We're just working out the uh, the final sort of uh, arrangements on all of that. And so, uh, yeah, hopefully it'll be stateside very soon. Great. And we can all follow you on Twitter, which is uh, your username. Well, people can access it by going to twitter.com slash work a Davis. We'll Absolutely. Include yeah, a link follow to Follow me. Follow okay. your extraordinary life and career. <laughs> oh, yes. There's all sorts of nonsense I talk about on there. It's, it's rather fun. <laughs> <Cool>. <laughs> all right. Great. Okay. Work. thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much, gentlemen. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks. All right, there you have it. We hope you all enjoyed that interview. Work is such a funny guy. It was it was fun recording with him, wasn't it, Micah? Yeah, absolutely. He he really got into character there towards the end. Yes, he did. That was funny. Uh, So now it's time for chapter by chapter. We're inching closer to then the Prisoner of Azkaban, and this week we are looking at chapters eighteen and nineteen of of the book. But first, it's time for another chapter-by-chapter intro. This one is from Vincent, and being a Lady Gaga fan myself, I I really enjoyed this one. So, you guys, take a listen. Introducing chapter, here we go and by the chapter-by-chapter, yeah, we go and one chapter-chapter at a time. Gaga! Gaga! Fox! That was trippy. That was sent in by Vincent. That was crazy. It's like it, it just punches you. It's like boom, chapter by chapter. Do do do. Well, thank you, Vincent. And we'll get to we'll play more entries as uh, you know we continue this segment through MuggleCast's life. If by the way, if you have your own chapter by chapter intro, if you would like to create one yourself, uh, feel free to do so. Then send it in to Andrew at staff.mugglenet.com. And in the subject line, just put chapter by chapter intro. So anyway, uh, Micah is going to lead us through the first chapter, chapter 18, which is Mooney, Wormtail, Patfoot, Prongs. It's got to be... actually a pretty short chapter. Yeah, I was going to say, it's like two pages long. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know about yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, but... it's, it's at least three. Yeah, come on now. Uh, but uh, a lot of information in, the, in those uh, three pages. Yeah. And... Uh, it starts off with uh, Sirius going after Scabbers, and he tries to kill him right then and there. He doesn't want to wait any longer, uh, but Lupin steps in and prevents him, and he says that Sirius owes it to Harry to tell him the truth. Uh, and so during this whole conversation, Ron and Harry think Sirius and Lupin are completely out of their minds. Uh, and, you know, Lupin... They basically try to explain, because the last chapter ended with the big reveal that Scabbers is, in fact, Peter Pettigrew. And they just don't want to believe it. They think that, you know, these two guys are just bonkers. And my question is, though, after just seeing Sirius transform from a dog and learning that he's an Animagus, why would they find it so hard to believe that Scabbers could be an Animagus as well? Well, because they, because I mean they've spent so much time with Scabbers, though, right? That's true. Yeah, I mean he was he was um, Ron's pet for 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 so long for twelve years. Well, Percy's pet before that. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just it's one of those things where even uh, like for instance when you find out like one of your family members is a convicted killer or rapist or something, 
it's like you, you just don't it doesn't it doesn't fathom you at first because you know you have a relationship with this yeah, I th- person i think without knowing peter pettigrew's um personality that he was like a coward was always you know the runt of the pack as mcgonagall had said earlier without knowing that it just doesn't seem you know reasonable that uh he would stay a rat um you know and and kind of hide out being a rat for 12 years it, it doesn't seem like a a glamorous uh, life and uh you know so when they hear that ron's rat is actually a person i think i think they really you know they just need to know more information i don't really you know especially in this chapter i don't think hermione's that opposed to the idea because she's got this con- she's got this conflict where she trusts teachers but of course he's a werewolf she's been holding out on him you know talking about lupin and you know i mean Soon into the story, she interjects and says, um, you know, but they would know because there's a register of animagi and, you know, they have an answer for that. So only mm-hmm. when, you know, I, I think Hermione is, is, and all of them even are, are on their way to being convinced. It's just initially it seems really odd because, you know, Ron's rat has always been Ron's rat, you know, for, for, right. and for, for such a long time. And they just don't know why he would hide out as a rat if he were actually alive and a person, etc. So there's, right. I think they just, they need the story told to them. And, and Lupin is quick to hold Sirius back from acting so that they can get the story out. Yeah. I mean, it's sort of a lot to take in, in this particular chapter. I mean, you're, you're learning all these things that seem completely outlandish, you know, in the wizarding world, never mind, you know, as a reader, um, so yeah. the, the conversation continues and they hear a creak outside. Uh, but Lupin goes out and looks and determines that nobody is there or so he thinks. Uh, and Ron comments that the place is haunted. Now Lupin tells Ron that this is in fact not true. Uh, and he goes through his whole story of how he became a werewolf uh, and how Dumbledore took precautions in order to let him be a student at Hogwarts. And, uh, you know, he recounts the Whomping Willow, the creation of the Underground Passage, and the Shrieking Shack. And, you know, we, we start to get a whole lot of backstory about uh, the tree, mm-hmm. which has been there and played a huge role in the in the second book. And, you know, the shack, which played a larger role earlier on in the book, but, you know, things start tying together, and, uh, and I thought, uh, it was an interesting backstory, a lot of which was left out of the movie, uh, th- this chapter is basically omitted from the book, with, with the exception of a few things, and I think, uh, not omitted from the book, omitted from the movie, uh, and I think that was one of the major problems people had with Prisoner of Azkaban as a whole, you know, aside from the director and all that other fun stuff. But I, I think this was the biggest issue. Like looking at this chapter in particular, this and this backstory that we're that we're talking about, you know, what do you guys think? Well, especially since the films we saw the the Whomping Willow featured especially in Chamber of Secrets when Harry and Ron run into it. Mm-hmm. So it would have been nice for people who are just watching the movie to see that to understand the backstory of the Whomping Willow, which is pretty interesting. And I was going to say how fitting that we're uh, talking about the Whomping Willow today, since uh, we just passed Earth Day the other day. Oh, yay. Yeah. Be kind oh, to your Whomping Willow. Yeah. Anyway, to that point, um, I just think the movie focused on... Like, well, the movie didn't focus on the world of Harry Potter. It focused on yeah. making a movie plot. and and then the care and a, and a characters, but it didn't it didn't focus on fleshing out the world, which is what I think the first two movies steadily in progression did. 
um, which is, you know, just a different choice of director. But that's why this chapter was almost, you know, always omitted, except for the sentences, your rat is Peter Pettigrew, and possibly it. No! Here or there. Uh, this chapter was completely absent right. from the movie. Yeah, and and so we learned that Sirius, James, and Peter all became Animagi in order to keep Remus company uh, when he turned into a werewolf. And uh, Remus mentions that they were roaming the school grounds in the village by night. So I, I'm going to ask the obvious question being, how did Dumbledore never once spot them at all? Throughout all the years that they're at Hogwarts, you know, I, I think they said that, you know, Peter could finally transform in their fifth year. So let's say three years, they were all, maybe even some before that, um, for Sirius and James. They're just walking around Hogwarts and Hogsmeade and nobody notices them. There were a couple of close encounters, uh, that they had. Nobody ever reported this. You know, it, it just seems weird to me, you know, that they just all did this under Dumbledore's nose, knowing how smart and powerful he is that never got caught once. Do you think Dumbledore really didn't know though? Yeah, he had to not have known because he would have known then that Sirius was an animagus. Oh, yeah. that's true, yeah. Which is, yeah, I was yeah. I was asking the same question in Matt like a minute ago, and I was like, hey, wait a minute, but Dumbledore didn't know, otherwise he would have had different safeguards. Sirius wouldn't have been right. able to get into the castle. But right, right. that said, like, I, I just, um, I, I think if you, I think around the time that, that Harry's parents were in school was also about, you, you know, maybe a few years before the, the heyday of Lord Voldemort. So maybe Dumbledore was just really that preoccupied. It's possible. Uh, but Hermione also mentions the point that, you know, it was dangerous for Lupin to do this. Always the, you know, the one to bring up the obvious. But, <laughs> right. uh, you know, it sounded like the mother. It was dangerous. There's no question. And, and, but also that, uh, you know, and Lupin really feels bad, uh, at this point in, in the chapter because, uh, you know, he feels as if he's betrayed Dumbledore's trust. And well, why you know, now he, though? I mean, why are you just realizing this now? Well, I know, I, <laughs> now that he's Hermione's exposed, words he's feeling have bad. Have an impact on him, like yeah, even Ron's like he cares for these kids. Yeah, so I guess that is a testament to the relationship he has with them. Yeah, he's he says all this year I've been battling with myself, wondering whether I should tell Dumbledore that Sirius was an Animagus, but I didn't do it. Why? Because I was too cowardly. It would have meant admitting that I betrayed his trust while I was at school, admitting that I led others along with me, and Dumbledore's trust has meant everything to me. But you yeah. know, I just decided to. It is quite piss on it, basically. <laughs> yeah, if it's ever a question, should you tell Dumbledore something or shouldn't you tell Dumbledore? Well, you probably should. Yeah, yeah, you odds probably are, should. I'm right, sorry, he probably already knows. Um, and, but Andrew, you asked this question. Would Dumbledore have approved of James Pettigrew and Sirius transforming into Animagi in order to help Lupin deal with his unwanted ability? If it was for the sake of helping students, maybe, or helping a student, maybe Dumbledore wouldn't have minded. Yeah, I think, I think Dumbledore would have understood this situation. I mean, he, he already went out of his way to set up this place for Lupin to go to transform into a werewolf. Um, obviously Dumbledore knows that as a student growing up in Hogwarts, you need to have some friends, you need to be surrounded by people who care about you, especially when you have to deal with something like this, being able to transform into a werewolf. So I think he would have understood, and I think he would have admired that, um, James, Sirius, and Peter were, were all trying to help their friend out. Agree, actually, mm -hmm. and especially their aptitude of becoming an animagus, an like it takes years to, I guess, learn how to do it. And, right. and then there's only seven who are, um, 
registered. Yeah, and it's noted in the book. I think it took them two or three years to master it. So yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, uh, yeah. but them being out on the town in Animagus nearly form, killing people uh, led to the Marauders map. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Lupin reveals who the other three on the map are. He had revealed uh, that he had helped make the map earlier on in the book. Uh, but, uh, I mean, this must be kind of weird for Harry, though, you know, learning all of this about his father in particular, and that these were all his, his best friends, and they had kind of just been hanging around him for this entire year, and, and he had absolutely no clue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Harry said a very interesting point this year. I mean, every time... His dad is mentioned, especially in these chapters. He's, you know, a different emotion comes out of him. You know, at first Sirius mentions his name and Harry's like, don't say his name. You killed him. And Sirius is like, oh, I as good as killed him. And, you know, goes into the story. But every time James is mentioned, you know, Harry is just being talked because it's kind of like what he's been going through with the Dementors where he hears his mother's voice. You know, it's knowledge about his parents that you just he just didn't expect to find. And here they're telling these stories, and he feels like he's, you know, among friends eventually. Right. But what's interesting is that never once is it mentioned what uh, Animagus form James took. It's it, He says that James was called Prongs, but they never specify, you know, what uh, his Animagus form was mm-hmm. in this chapter anyway. Uh, which is what makes so much confusion, I think, later on. Well, I think the subject, too, is on Peter Pettigrew at the moment, so... They do limit it, but... Yeah. Uh, so Lupin continues his storytelling, uh, and uh, he he tells about how Dumbledore appointed him to Defense Against the Dark Arts, and uh, he also makes Sirius aware of the fact that Snape is, is at Hogwarts as well, teaching potions, and Sirius doesn't seem to like that too much. And uh, But one thing that I thought about while reading this is that Dumbledore really believes in taking risks and are giving second chances. You know, Snape, a former Death Eater, he's teaching potions. Lupin is a werewolf. He's teaching defense against the dark arts. Hagrid is a half-giant, and he's, teach- and he's been expelled from Hogwarts at one point. He's teaching care of magical creatures. Trelawney, who's kind of a kook, a drunk, and a fraud, is teaching divination. So <laughs> it's it's kind of like... I don't even know, like a hodgepodge of... Castle for misfits. Social yeah, outcasts. Yeah, yeah exactly. This, but this is the finest school of witchcraft and wizardry. <laughs> yeah, it definitely it's is. It's the only one in Britain. Yeah. So, uh, but next we learn the story of how Sirius played a trick on Snape that almost killed him. And and this goes back to Sorcerer's Stone when, when Harry learned that, that his father had saved uh, Snape's life. And that James had done this at great personal risk to himself. Um, and, and this was the whole night that Snape learned about Lupin's condition. Lupin saw, uh, or sorry, Snape saw Madame Pomfrey taking Lupin out uh, to the Wampig Willow, and he figured he would follow, uh, and uh, in the process almost got killed. So, uh, interesting how James saves Snape, um, but how Snape just can't seem to get over the fact uh that, 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 I don't know. Maybe James just treated him that bad for the rest of their time at Hogwarts. What do you guys think? I mean, Hanging yeah, him upside I think down, the relationship would be a bit better. Pants, you know, it's kind of mm-hmm. yeah. Once you get well, him hung upside down by your underpants, using his own spell against him, stealing his girl. Eh. There's there's more on this in the next yeah. chapter, so um, I'll talk about it there. 
Yeah. Uh, the, the other just kind of final bit of information from this chapter we learn is that Snape has been brewing the Wolfsbane potion for Lupin. And, you know, I, I kind of wonder, is is that something he's doing against his own will? You know, he obviously wasn't really happy with Lupin being pointed to this position. But, you know, the other thing is that this this Wolfsbane potion is mentioned in, in Sorcerer's Stone. It's And it's also mentioned with the Bezor and the Drought of Living Death. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's just interesting how all three of those end up playing a role later on in the series. It's kind of like one of those mentioned in passing bits yeah. that, yeah. that becomes, end up playing a much larger how role. How does the Drought of Living Death? Well, they don't they have to brew it, or is that living? Is that peace? Or is, I don't remember. I thought they had to brew it in in for Slughorn he, and Half Blood. He mentions yeah. it in the movie. Oh yeah, yeah, they do. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I don't think Snape can do. Like, I don't think Dumbledore can make Snape do anything. Like, make Snape do anything. Like, I, I think what it is is, a, a, and it is a testament to Snape because Lupin says, you know, it's a difficult potion to brew, and I owe Snape. I think he's, I don't know if he says my life, but he says, I really owe Snape for that. I, I think later in, um, book five or six, when Harry is talking bad on Snape, you know, Lupin specifically reminds him that he brew, you know, he can't really have anything against Snape because he kept him away from, from transforming. And I think, you know, Snape knows the, you know, knows the danger of, you know, students or anybody coming into contact with a full werewolf from his almost, you know, near death experience. So I, I I just think, you know, Snape, it is a testament to his character that he's brewing this potion for Lupin. And I think he is doing it against his, you know, best wishes, but he understands why he's doing it. I think that is one of the clues that Snape is, is actually, you know, at least reasonable, um, you know, a reasonable human being from time to time. Yeah, so so once uh, Lupin is done telling the story to Harry about how um, his father saves Snape, uh, Snape arrives in the room uh, from under the invisibility cloak, so that whole creak that they heard earlier on in the uh, chapter was in fact Snape hiding out. He seems to have a uh, a knack for that, doesn't he? Hiding he likes, out. Uh, he he likes listening outside doors. <laughs> <laughs> oh oh. Um, he did it in uh, you know, in the uh, what was it? Even sooner than that, the three broomsticks. Even sooner than that, he did it when his parents were fighting. When Harry finds his uh his memory or whatever, when his when his leclumency backfires or whatever, he he's just a sneaky little fellow, like mm-hmm. a kid. And, yeah. So the chapter chapter nineteen, the servant of Lord Voldemort opens up with everyone in awe that Snape has arrived, and Snape reveals he made his way in thanks to the invisibility cloak that Harry had conveniently left right outside. Again. And I was wondering that he can, I was thinking he can actually fit under that cloak, because, you know, in the books is always described as, like, you know, Harry, Harry, the trio's feet are sort of sticking out from under it, so I guess Snape must have had to crouch down, crouch down low to fit under it, which could not be good for his back. I think that's in the movies, though, where their feet are sticking out or whatever. I think in the books, it, they actually remark it how it still fits them after so many years. Oh, darn. I think it's, that's well, the movie where they show, because to show them completely covered by the cloak would be like not having them in the scene. So they always show Harry with his arm out, you know, holding the lantern and crap, when really they... I uh, just... Yeah, I think it's a movie. I just like to imagine Snape struggling with the cloak. With his back, yeah. With and yeah. his back. You just want to see oh, him suffer. So Snape begins telling Lupin off, thinking he's been thinking that Lupin has been helping Sirius get into the castle to kill Harry, 
I mean, Snape is enraged at this point. And at this moment, Harry, I think, must be in love with Snape for once. Because here's the one time a person he trusts dearly, Lupin, has betrayed him. Or at least he thinks so. And then enters Snape to save the day. Did you guys all get the same impression? No. Why not? Because I don't like Snape. What do you mean in love with Snape? Like, are, yeah. do you mean glad he's you, there? Or? Yeah, glad he's there to, to, he, Snape agrees with Harry, or vice versa. No, no, well, Snape, Snape agreed, um, the fact that he doesn't like Lupin because he doesn't trust him. Because he answered Harry's question right, a, right after the chapter, or r- right before this chapter, at the end of, Chapter 18. But still, Harry has his reservations about the whole situation going well, on. You know, in, in well, no, well, because, okay, so he's already conflicted between Lupin and Sirius because Sirius Black is this guy that he has been thinking that he's, he, he's coming to murder him and he doesn't trust him at all. And then there's Lupin who's trying to explain why Sirius is good. So he's really conflicted about someone he doesn't trust and someone he does. And then here comes Sirius, or here comes Snape, a guy that he detests. So, I mean, I, I don't think that makes him feel any better. I think it makes him even more confused. Look, there are so any. there are so many reasons that these chapters are my favorite chapters of any Harry Potter book and that this is my favorite Harry Potter book. And I think one of the other reasons is this, this Snape moment. He, you know, he's come in under the invisibility cloak that was James's invisibility cloak. The, you know, this chapter is really Snape's chance at being a marauder. You know, he always wanted to, to fit in or was always jealous or envious of James's talent, you know crouching under his invisibility cloak, saving the day, you know, is all reminiscent of, of everything Snape's ever wanted for himself. The difference is that, you know, Snape lets his personal feelings get, you, you know, the better of him. So, uh, you know, I know we'll be getting in shortly, uh, you know, the choices that he makes do not appeal to Harry, and the choices that he makes actually work to set everybody against him. And and I, I don't think it's because he's Snape. I just think it's because he's, he's going about it all wrong um, by, yeah, well, you know, You'd have to think that he's heard the entire story at this point, and he knows the truth, and he's just not willing to yeah. accept what he's just heard. If Yeah, you're right. There's no reason for him not to believe it, right. as Hermione tries to get him to do you know, a little bit later on. Just, okay, well, why can't we test these yeah. guys' theories out? And if it turns out not to be true... Yeah, he quickly becomes a villain so again. so be it. Well, yep. at any rate... Harry has a quick change of heart, though, when Snape says he's taking Lupin and Sirius to the the mentors. Harry realizes Lupin has had a million chances to kill him, but he hasn't. So Snape insists to move out of the way, but the trio, and basically all all at the same time, sends spells at Snape. He goes flying backward, and he's knocked out, which was kind of insane to see a teacher be hit by a student. I mean, that's unheard of. Three. Um, And they believe this is all because of Snape's childhood grudge you know this reason that snape is so angry and so wants to see snape so wants to see lupin and sirius in azkaban is because of you know the pranks that they played on snape when they were all students at hogwarts is it really though do you guys believe this is truly snape's childhood grudge he's still holding he just can't let go yeah yeah he can't let go i mean what gives him the right to say oh why don't we t- i'm going to take you straight to the dementors i'm not even going to take you up to the yeah, castle. no trial he's not the police no nothing he's not he's not anybody of authority other than than a professor no and but at and this that- but at this time he does think that lupin has been helping sirius in the castle he doesn't he doesn't care i don't think so again he's heard the story you know, he knows this, that. Yeah, Ron's exactly. Re- he's heard the whole story. He's been sitting, listening the whole time. He knows and, the and truth. And Snape, but he's letting his his yeah, like you said, the childhood 
issues yeah. blind it's, his. It's it's, an, it's his a lifelong issue. It's it's you know it grew out of his childhood. He was like it in his adolescence, and it's a lifelong grudge. Yeah, I mean, he does he, he even mentions about um, revenge? So that's what he's doing right now. He's just trying to get revenge from all, from you know what, what the what the Marauders did to And him. I think nothing but that could have made the whole trio stand up in unison and start sending spells at Snape because he wasn't helping the situation. He really wasn't. And they wanted they wanted answers and he was just going to take them all to get their souls sucked out before they can explain anything. Right. And calling yeah. Hermione a stupid girl probably didn't help the situation. Yeah, yeah probably too. not. It does. <laughs> well, that and the fact that he's supposedly Lord Voldemort's most trusted uh, you know, Death Eater, he would probably know that Sirius wasn't the one who betrayed the Potters. That's very so true. So then Sirius begins to explain everything. This is where a ton of information starts to come out. Uh, he learned of Pettigrew's life as Scabbers after seeing the rat in the Daily Prophet without a toe. He's been working with Crookshanks to bring Scabbers to him. Sirius we're talking about. Scabbers hadn't been looking healthy ever since when Ron returned from Egypt when Sirius escaped from Azkaban. And lastly, Sirius explains to Harry that the Seeker Keeper power was transferred to Pettigrew at the last minute, meaning that while it was Sirius's fault, it wasn't really his fault. It was actually Pettigrew who betrayed his parents. So that was the big um, uh, twist. And um, so with all this information now out on the table, Sirius and Lupin decide to attempt to transform Scabbers. And of course it works and Pettigrew appears. And Pettigrew, then in, a, in an act of being desperate, tries to convince Lupin that Sirius is actually the crazy one, but it's no use. And Hermia, Her, Her, Hermione disp- decides to speak up and asks why Pettigrew never decided to do anything to Harry the whole time he's been sleeping in the same dormitory. And Pettigrew is like, yeah, 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 of course, I've been, I've been innocent. I mean, I, I stare at him sleeping every night. But Sirius is too smart for this. He responds that Pettigrew would never do anything unless he could see what was in it for himself. Hermione then asks how Sirius had possibly escaped from Azkaban. And it's a pretty um, simple way, it seems. He explains that the Dementors can't see, so he was able to transform into a dog and sneak through the bars since he was so thin. That was essentially, Mm -hmm. I mean, the story was a little more drawn out. Um, But he did this when they were delivering food, and he then swam... Um, you know, out into the ocean and came to Hogwarts, living in the forest the entire time. The other thing so, is that the other thing is that because they suck out happy memories, the the memory of Sirius of being innocent wasn't a happy memory, so it stayed with him. So he still knew who he was and that he didn't do what he did. Yeah. So when he mm-hmm. saw them, when he read the newspaper and saw Pettigrew in Egypt, uh, he knew that uh, you know it gave him the flare, the spark to to get out and do something about his innocence. I like how um, Hermione referred to him as Mr. Black. Yeah. Yeah, he goes, she goes, Mr. Black? Or serious? Like he's a professor or yeah, something. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, he's growing in, in everyone's eyes. You know, he's not just serious Black, right. escaped crazy madman, convicted felon. Yeah, I guess so. This is sort of Joe's way of telling us that, that Hermione's starting to have respect for him. Mm-hmm. Um, so then Pettig- Pettigrew continues going around, attempting to be saved by everyone in the room. He sort of sucks up to everyone individually. And nobody has it, so Sirius and Lupin prepare to kill him. But at this moment, Harry steps in, in front of Pettigrew, to stop Lupin and Sirius from killing him. He says, Harry says he's only doing this because he thinks his father 
when once Sirius and Lupin to become killers by way of killing Pettigrew. To this, Sirius says, quote, You're the only person who has the right to decide, Harry. And I've always had a problem with this. Does he? Should it be Harry who's making this decision? Um, Sirius and Lupin clearly have good reasons for wanting to kill Pettigrew. So, well, Micah, do you agree with this? I mean, what's going on here? Why, why didn't Lupin and Sirius just kill him anyway? Who cares what Harry has to say? Well, I mean, it, it's kind of like saying that Snape has the right to take uh, Lupin and Sirius to the Dementors. You know, it's kind of that same argument. He doesn't. And I don't think it's Harry's choice either. I mean, obviously, it has huge implications later on in the series uh, that he did that. Uh, but, I, I, you know, I just don't think it's right. I think that that they should they should have just taken him in you know why even kill him i mean if you kill him the story dies with him that's that's right. the worst part yeah. of it you know you 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 take him knock him out bring him up to the castle and force the truth yeah. out of him reading right. reading about all of the stuff that that Sirius goes through in books 4 and 5 he's in hiding and he's secluded and you know he's lonely he, all of that is because the public or anyone in power has not seen Peter Pettigrew alive and that's devastating because you know if they had just seen him alive seen him in human form once again they would know that the whole thing was fake and as it happens Dumbledore does believe Harry and Lupin and all of that so you know Sirius is able to to help out the order but I mean that that's what's just so so heart-wrenching in reading these chapters again is that all anybody had to do was see Pettigrew and so yes killing him would be the wrong answer at this point and I think uh, it's interesting that Harry this wasn't really a, a that intense a scene where it's like, I mean, they're, they're going to kill him, and Harry's like, no, my dad wouldn't really want that. And he's like, well, if you're sure. And he's like, yeah, I'm sure. Let's take him to the castle. That constituted, that created a life debt. And it's interesting because um, that that that's kind of vague for a life debt, you know, to, to particularly owe somebody. You know, that's a magical uh, contract that's being formed right when Harry suggested, hey, my parents wouldn't really want this. But it, but it would have been such a miscalculation on their part, though, to kill him because then they're just letting their raw emotion take over because, it, you know, who's to say that they wouldn't have just said, oh, well, they, they, he broke out of Azkaban to kill Pettigrew because that's what he, he initially intended to do and never succeeded. Right. You know, and so now here he is dead. You know, who's to say that they wouldn't, you know, hold Lupin as his accomplice because they're not going to believe the word of three you know, underage school wizards. children. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. I, I, I still disagree. I would have had him killed. So the chapter ends with everyone leaving the Shrieking Shack and taking Snape and Pet- Pettigrew back up to the castle to get them, you know, tended to. Snape is hanging in midair because of the strings that Lupin put around him, and it kind of reminded me of what Voldemort does in Deathly Hallows with um that 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 woman who's spinning in midair. Burbage. Burbage. Yeah. Yes. Charity, Charity, Charity Burbage. Burbage. So I thought that was kind of like, not foreshadowed, just a nice little connection, I thought. <laughs> and, Especially since she asks him for help in that chapter, too. And and to wrap, oh. to wrap up uh, the chapter, uh, Micah has a point about this. Oh, when they're leaving the shack, because we all know what happens afterwards, but I mean, wouldn't it have been smart for Lupin to send a Patronus to Dumbledore? Yeah. I mean... The, I, one would think that they could make it all the way up to the castle without something happening. 
Yeah. But so knowing there's a small that, chance. Yeah, knowing the 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 sort of coincidence factor. The, yeah. The, 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 that plays into all these books, but you know, I just thought that would have been a perfect opportunity for for him to go to somebody that he obviously puts a lot of trust in and would be able to help them out in this particular. You know, situation. that's that's actually a really great point. He should have at this point recruited Dumbledore, and, and, and I mean, the only thing I can think of is that you know they used to use their Patronuses to communicate with each other uh, back in the old days, the first Voldemort War. It's been 13 years, so I, I guess that kind of either fell out of practice or, or isn't on the top of their minds that, that you know, that's... it's a, From what I understand, it's a very interesting way to use your Patronus to send messages, so I, I, I just... I think it would have been important to, to alert Dumbledore, and they should have done that. It's a great point. Um, but it probably yeah. wasn't on the... Well, I mean, when's the first time we see that? Is it Goblet of Fire? I thought it was... When um, Barty Crouch Sr. is found? Oh, I wonder. Um, I think it is. It might be. I think so, but yeah. When he, will, he wants Hagrid, I think. But also, um, I mean, the, the, uh, the Marauders always used to do stuff on their own, too. And maybe that's why they didn't get um call for Dumbledore's Well at, at this point at the time Pettigrew is standing there in human form with all of the trio being able to back up both Sirius and Lupin. I think at this point before they leave the sh- shack it is an okay moment to call Dumbledore and I think recruiting Dumbledore would have prevented a lot you know everything. Well related to that question now we have some feedback sent in via Twitter. Uh we every before recording every episode we Send a tweet out uh, through our MuggleCast Twitter, which is twitter.com slash MuggleCast, to ask people co- to ask people to contribute their questions about these <laughs> chapters. Seven Leah Seven asks, why wouldn't they stun Pettigrew rather than tie him up and risk him transforming? I think, like, personally, just in this moment, they weren't, nobody was really thinking straight. It was sort of like a whirlwind, everything that just went on. So, I, I think it, it, I, I'm not surprised that, that these kind of mistakes happened. <laughs> Stunning Pettigrew certainly would have, uh, uh, helped prevent situations that were later to follow. <laughs> they, they laid a lot of, lot of, lot of things to accomplish, too. And, uh, you know, one, one little trip to the Shrieking Shack, you know, going in, Harry thinks Sirius Black is a murderer. He regrets that he's his godfather, his crazy things. And by the time he comes out, you know, both Lupin and Sirius are clear to charges. Peter Pettigrew isn't dead for the past 13 years. He's alive and well, living his runs. So much has happened. It's like they're not counting on the moon. And that sucks. Right. Hardcore. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, that I have a question about that, though, too, because doesn't he say that you're supposed to take the Wolfsbane potion a week before the full moon? And when Snape comes in, he says, you left your potion on the desk. So it really shouldn't be a full moon. Because Snape brews it for him a week beforehand so that he has enough time to take it. So I don't know if that's like a screw up in the the timeline of things, but it it shouldn't be a full moon that night. Right. And I always always thought that with werewolves, I mean, this is probably not right or anything, but I mean, on the the night of a full moon, couldn't he feel... Like there's gonna there, there's a new moon or there's a full moon coming. Yeah, like not you mean like right. not even like if he's if, in front of it. Like yeah, because I mean even if the the moon isn't shining on him at that moment, I mean doesn't I mean doesn't a werewolf sort of um, have that connection to the full moon when it's out? I, I I don't know. Next question comes from Luisa Luca. How come there's no cure for lycanthropy? I don't even know how to pronounce it. Lycanthropy. Nobody ever asked Lockhart about the werewolf he claimed he cured. 
Ooh. After he was exposed as a fraud, shouldn't they have found and treated his victims and studied their their discoveries? Mm. That's interesting. That's actually really interesting. Because if anybody cured a werewolf, you'd think you'd want to know about that, because there isn't a cure. <laughs> right. That's a good point. Right, you would know. Well, of course, but Lockhart wasn't being serious, so. Yeah. But if it's in a book that he cured a werewolf, I mean, I, I'd think that that would... So somebody else... Somebody must else have. must have cured, you know, or something. So yeah, that's a good question. That's That may be my favorite tweet ever. <laughs> favorite tweet ever. Bean Girl 1389 says, Snape has no luck when he's near the Shrieking Shack. That's absolutely true. <laughs> like I said, he started out okay. He's got he, the invisibility cloak and ready to set, set about some revels, but uh, yeah, he doesn't. It's kind of ironic. He died at the place he always wanted to go to. Yay! Poor guy. It all it, it all comes full circle. <laughs> like the moon. <laughs> it all comes full oval. Well, we only have one more chapter-by-chapter chapter segment left for this book, because um, on episode 198, we will cover the final three chapters. Uh, so... From those three, we will now do quote, quote, quiz, quiz, quiz. Well done, I think. Yes, I think you've gone too. Get inside. I'll lock you in. Dumbledore. That's absolutely correct, Micah. You are a quote, quiz, quiz master. Oh, oh, Micah, I got one for you. Okay, quote. Well, well, we shall see, Snape. We shall see. The boy has undoubtedly been foolish. Uh, fudge. Yeah. Yeah. Well, now we have two Muggle Mail emails this week. A bit of a shorter Muggle Mail this week because of our interview with Warwick Davis. Uh, Eric, could you read the first one? Yeah, first one's from Lauren from Doncaster, UK. She says, I want to say that the background with Hermione living near Harry, um, she's referring to an alternate timeline uh, that JKR considered, uh, you mentioned it was with the when the Potters lived at Godric's Hollow and Mr. Granger saw Hagrid as he took Harry from Godric's Hollow just after Voldemort killed Lily and James. Well, you wanted to talk about how Hermione and Harry would have known each other before and their relationship would be impacted and may have changed in the series. However, my point is this would not be the case as both characters would have been around the age of one when Harry was taken to Privet Drive, therefore away from the Grangers, meaning that they would not actually be growing up together and would have no recollection of each other whatsoever, and I doubt that Mr. Granger would tell Hermione that he saw a huge man take the child <laughs> away from the house down the road. That would probably instill nightmares in her young mind. So when they went to Hogwarts, neither would still be aware of the other. Love the show and just wanted to point this out. Okay. What do you guys think? Yeah, I, for some reason, I was thinking they were referring to Privet Drive. But as Lauren puts at the very end of her email, it couldn't mean leaving from Privet Drive later in Harry's life as Hagrid picks Harry up from that secret gateway when Dudley gets turned into a pig. So, ah, yeah. oh, bummer. So wait, what was the point then of her, of Rowling considering Hermione growing up with Harry? I don't know. I mean, you know, I guess as a writer, you have different thoughts about how each character should start out and... It just popped into her head, maybe? That- yeah, but they, they... I mean, when when Rowling was talking about it, she was talking about Harry and Hermione knowing each other before Harry goes off to Hogwarts, wasn't he? Or was she was just talking about them living in Godric's Hollow, same time as the mm-hmm. Potters? Well, maybe maybe there would have been some backstory concerning the Potters and Granger parents, perhaps? Maybe... Not so much Harry and Hermione? Maybe he was just going to stab him with his wand. 
What? But they still would have had some certain bonds, even though they would have been too young to know each other in that short period of time. Maybe they still would have had some extra special connection, knowing that they each used to live next to each other and their parents were, were friends, possibly. Interesting. Next email is from Nicole, 25, of Rancho Magana, California. Cucamonga. Cuc- Thank you. Eric's just all full pronunciations today. Hi, MuggleCast. I was just writing in a question I thought of while listening to your episode 196, the discussion of Cat, Rat, and Dog for Prisoner of Azkaban. What spell do you think Harry would have used to kill Sirius? Since they don't learn about unforgivable curses till the following year, and I don't think they know too many spells that would do fatal damage at that point. Although Harry might disagree, I doubt even the most powerful Expelliarmus would do him in. Just wanted to see what you guys thought. Thanks, I love the show, and I've been a listener for many years. Keep up the good work. Oh, crap. That's what I was referring to is this email. Sorry, my scroll keeps going down like half a page. Referring to mouth. when? When you... When, when, no, no, when I was talking about the wand. Oh. That's odd. Was, yeah, I'm sorry. So you, you, you said he'd that. stab him with his wand, right? Yeah. Like right in the eye. Like, or up the nose. Yeah, pretty but, much. That might work. Well, maybe yeah. Hermione would have known. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, just because they don't, just because they don't um, learn about them, doesn't mean they don't know about them. You know, there's there's plenty of stuff. You know, think about it when you're in school. Like the teacher may teach you something, but you already know about it, right? I yeah. Mean, there are things. Sure. Well, like, you learn about in school that you already know about from your own personal life. Yeah. I think Harry would probably know the spell that killed his parents. Well, Hermione knows about the un- unforgivable. Well, curses because she answers them in the next book. Yeah, Hermione knows about. I don't think. I really don't think Harry knows about them until they're introduced in class. Harry specifically. I think Ron knows about them, having heard, you know, from being a wizarding family, you know, all Mm -hmm. that. So, but Eric, do you think that Harry? I mean, knowing the Avada Kedavra curse could kill Sirius. Well, no, I don't think. I don't think he'd try, and I don't think he was asked to. I think Remus and Sirius said it was Harry's choice whether or not Pettigrew gets killed, but. I don't think that they mean that Harry should do it. I, I think that, you know, they, they're going to do it. They're willing to do it. And, and so, you know, it wouldn't be an issue because Lupin would, would, Lupin and Sirius would, would kill Pettigrew for, for Harry. He wouldn't need to know the spell. Right. But, but, um, but Nicole's asking oh, how about he would Sirius. Kill Sirius. Yeah. Um, Cause at that moment, he's, he's filled with rage. Yeah. With Sirius. I, I don't think that Harry knew the, the unforgivable curses, and I really think the best that Harry could do is probably uh, a bat bogey hex. You know, so Sirius is on the ground. Well, think about Molly though. Yeah. Molly doesn't use a killing curse; she just does something that ends up killing Bellatrix. I mean, I'm sure if there's enough pent up rage inside of you, I mean, maybe he could just choke the guy to death. I mean, who knows? Who says he's got to use magic? Or, or like Matt said, stab him with a wand. <laughs> I don't, yeah, I don't know. Like Sparks always or kick him somewhere. Out. Harry yeah, exactly. uses it, so. Right, 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 right. To wrap up the show today, it's time for chicken soup for the MuggleCast soul. Everyone cozy up and, and listen in. Mm. This one's from Evelyn Lewis, 17 of Maryland. Hey guys, love the show. I've been listening to your show for a year now, and I just want to thank you for such a fun podcast. I never used to have a good relationship with my mom. I got along with my dad more, but she heard me listening to you guys and started listening with me. Your show gave us a new bond. Your show gave us something to bond over, and now we are very close, and I am proud to say I actually enjoyed prom dress shopping with her. Again, amazingly fantastic show, and thank you so much. P.S. My mom says hi to Micah. This, mm. 
Oh, oh, oh. Yeah. This is my favorite chicken soup ever. Signed, Lynn. <laughs> my mom. Hello to, hello to Evelyn's mom. <laughs> well, uh, exchange numbers later, Micah. Oh, this is, this is awesome, though. You know, it's a girl who says, you know, she wasn't that close with her mom, but they both listen to MuggleCast and they bond over Mike. This is awesome. Yeah, it's great. Glad to hear. Thank you very and, much. And, uh, and prom dress shopping is such a, an important part of a young girl's life. So I'm glad that she could spend that with her mom. And with us. And with us. Yeah, we were probably there, like, in the dressing room. They were talking about, like, what Mike has said. Eric. What? Of course it goes to the dressing room with you. <laughs> How about just in the, the shopping area? Why Why the dressing room? Yeah, I'm now I'm embarrassed. <laughs> now I'm thoroughly Okay, embarrassed. well, before we let everyone go today, we want to remind you about a couple of things. First of all, Infinitus 2010 is coming up this July. July 15th to the 18th in Orlando, Florida. We're going to be there, and we can't wait to see you. We're going to be doing a live muggle cast, and um, there's some exciting news to announce about that. Very exciting stuff. Um, we can't like yet. what? I can't reveal at this time. I'm sorry, Micah. But, but we, it's exciting. We are doing a podcast, and you and, and, and if you want to do something fun Potter-related this summer, go to the Harry Potter theme park and be there while we're there. During Infinitus 2010, which is a big Harry Potter conference that we're all looking forward to. It's the Harry Potter conference. Infinitus2010.org is the site to get all the information about it. You can um, learn what's going to be going on there. You can register, and um, we hope to see you there. When you do register, be, f- be sure to put MuggleCast in your referral box. Also, don't forget, we're doing uh, we're putting together the MuggleCast remix. Visit MuggleCast.com for, details, for full details including uh, a link to the first MuggleCast remix, so you can enjoy that. But uh, to put it uh, nice and short, just find your favorite moment from episodes 26 to 100. Moments. And s- moments, right. Send in, You can send in multiple moments and email them to eric at staff.mugglenet.com. He needs the episode number and the time that the moments begin. It could be multiple episodes. You know, You know what we're saying. MuggleCast.com is the website where you can get all the information you need pertaining to this wonderful program that we do each and every other week. You can follow us on Twitter, fan us on Facebook. Don't forget to vote for us once a month at Podcast Alley. Get all the information about us. You can see our pretty pictures. You can read questions about the show, questions and answers. You can download any episode of MuggleCast you could ever want. You can read transcripts. You can read transcripts. You can... You can read about the transcribers. Right. You can visit our Wall of Fame with lots of information. Uh, the, the Wall of Fame, it's on the right side of MuggleCast.com, underneath all the community links. It's some of our favorite episodes of MuggleCast, and we explained why each one was so good. Um, so that's a lot of fun to read through as well. Thanks again, everyone, for listening. Episode 198 will be released... Around May 12th. Andrew, so, what's going to come sooner? Yes. Episode 200 or MuggleNet 2.0? MuggleNet 2.0. Awesome. We'll talk about that um, next episode, and I actually can show you guys how it's looking now. It's actually in a semi-working order cool. <laughs> at this point. <laughs> uh, so we'll do that after we finish uh, recording the show here. I'm Andrew Sims. I'm Eric Skull. I'm Mike Tadamel. And I'm Matt Britton. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you May 12th for episode 198. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.
Welcome everyone back to the show. It's a special episode today. Oh, I don't know. I, don't know. I wasn't feeling that intro. Welcome back everyone to the show. It's a special in. Okay, well that wraps up chapter by chapter this week. Or, pfft, duh, we're already ahead of that. Let the now. Uh, it's too early. That's my problem today. 